things and also wonderful things that we deal with through the course of our lives. Emotions uh, can take us on a roller coaster from joy and happiness to uh, depths of despair, uh, from love to pain. Uh, Our emotions can take us all over the place. And I think sometimes uh, we fail to really grasp or understand uh, the way biblically we are to process and express uh, our emotions. How do we approach God when we are despairing? How uh, do we approach God when the wicked prosper? How do we approach God when we feel joy and pleasure? And I think to some degree... Uh, The church as a whole has lost the ability to express a a wide range of emotion. It's always been one of my biggest issues with 21st century Christian music. It can tend to be very limited in its emotional spectrum. It is very praise-oriented, praise, praise, praise. Praise, 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 and it doesn't, and not that it's bad, it's just been one of my, I've been dissatisfied, I guess you could say with it, because the emotional range is too narrow. We don't have to simply come to God with just songs of joy or songs of praise, there's much more, and the Psalms show us an array, a a large range of emotions that we can come to God with. God has given us this avenue. He's given us appropriate ways to express his truth. He gives us the ability to cry out to God in the many conditions of our heart and how we can call upon him. There are psalms of lament that are simply there lamenting to God over loss and over pain. There are psalms of of thanksgiving that are there to say, God, thank you for your many blessings. There are psalms of ascent, which are simply songs that bring us into worship. In our six-week, I guess it's six-week as I have it here, study of the psalms, we're going to explore what the psalms have to say about the Messiah. How do we understand and how do we approach the Messiah? Why are we focusing on the Messiah? Well, as you may know or may not know, we're in the Easter season. Uh, The season in which we remember the resurrection, death and resurrection of our Lord. And we go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the Psalms. Not limited to the Psalms in the Old Testament, but we're going to see it in the Psalms. And we see the Messiah being proclaimed. What are we to understand about him? How do we receive forgiveness? How can we cry out to him? What is the nature of his authority? In what ways is he faithful? In what ways or or how now is he even preparing us for eternity? All of these things are laid out for us in the Psalms. In Psalm 1, which we haven't read and we're not going to read, in Psalm 1 we see... That those who are blessed are those who delight in the, in the law of God. But in Psalm 2, which the reality is, is again, as you look at the Psalms, uh, remember that we put Psalm 1 and we put Psalm 2 uh, there. The 1 and the 2 are not original. Um, 
The reality is, is that these Psalms are kind of linked together. But if one talks about the blessing through, the, through obeying the law, the second, which we're, we're looking at today, talks about the blessing that we receive through following the Messiah. In essence, those Psalms together proclaim that the law without Messiah only condemns. And so we see here the Messiah, the Son of God. Psalm 2 is, is with, together with Psalm 110, the most quoted of all the Psalms in the New Testament. In fact, if you notice here, in, in many of the uh, Psalms, like if you, were, if you have your Bibles open, you look at Psalm 3, it says, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That, that actually, that inscription there is part of the actual word of God. That's not something we added. That's the actual saying. This is a psalm of David. Uh, psalm 2 doesn't give us that. Who, is, who wrote this psalm? But if we were to turn to Acts 4, if we were to look at the, the sermon of Peter in 425, as he's talking to the, I think it's the Sanhedrin, or, or the, the council there, he says, uh, this is a psalm of David. It's the word of God. We, we believe it to be inspired. So this is a psalm of David. And Peter draws parallels in Acts for us between the Messiah, or excuse me, David and the Messiah. Both are designated as God's sons. Both are designated as God's servants. Both have the kings of the earth against them. And again, as, as we've said, you can go to Acts 13, we see this psalm again. Go to Revelation 19, again, this psalm is quoted. quoted. So what then, as we come to the psalm, is the central theme? Uh, all the psalms tend to have a central theme. And the theme of Psalm 2 is this. The Lord of the covenant establishes his Messiah's eternal reign. God has established the reign of the Messiah. Despite opposition of the kings and nations of this world, even when they rebel, God is in control. Psalm 4 is divided into four stanzas. In fact, uh, many of your Bibles, I know the ESV is this way, you can see where the stanza breaks are. Um, if you notice, there may be a little, almost like double spacing, right? Uh, and it, they're in sections of three verses. So you have one through three, four through six, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. And they're meant to be stanzas. It, it's poetry. It's, it's meant to be sung in some ways. And so you see here, it has much, we'll see as we go through the Psalms, there's much poetic, there's a poetic nature to them, but also a, a musical nature to them. And so we see four stanzas or four verses of the Psalm here before us. And the four things we're going to see, because we are going to look at each four stanzas, is this. First, the nation's plot. Second, the Lord laughs. Third, the Messiah is proclaimed. And finally, the nations submit. So first, the nation's plot, the Lord laughs, the Messiah is proclaimed, and the nations submit. Let's begin by looking at the nation's plot. It begins here with a simple question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot? In vain. In essence, it's saying this What is the point of the nations raging? Why do they rage against God? Why do they deny the covenant Lord of the universe? Why do they deny that they are accountable to Him? Why do they lie, cheat, and steal? What do they hope 
to gain from their rebellion? And, and the answer, or, or part of the question is, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? The, the writer David here is acknowledging that there's a vanity to plotting against God. They seek to conspire against him, but it will be for nothing. We see here, and it's not just a singular corruption, it's a corporate corruption. Why do the nations, plural, why are all the peoples of the earth plotting against God? There is a corporate spirit of corruption and sin against God. And we see this. Uh, even today, if you were to look at the nations and you say, well, how, do, how does the world act we see those who would take advantage of the weak. We see examples of those who would cheat those they employ. We see institutions like universities and other things that would promote and teach atheism. And they all share collectively in a single goal. And we see their goal in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the, king, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, sorry, verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. The raging of the nations, their desire is to do what? To do what they would call free themselves from the restraints of God. They want to burst their bonds. They want to break their cords. They want to be free from the restraints of God. They have twisted the very structural order of things. They have declared that which is good to be evil and have declared that it needs to be broken out of. Again, think about the world that we live in. This is uh, the one thing I find about scripture is the more we read it, the more we realize that while it may have been written thousands of years ago, it, it could be written yesterday, right? Because how is that different than what's going on today? When we look at the Bible and we say, you know what the Bible's doing to you? You know what your faith is doing to you? It's just restricting you. It's restricting your time. It's restricting your money. It's restricting your pleasure. It's restricting you. It's telling you what you can't do. And what, is, what would the world have us believe? Break free from that. Break out of that. You don't need people telling you no. Choose to do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. That's the, the saying of Nike, right? Just do it. Just do it. If you want to do it, just do it. They have called freedom bondage. It, it, I think it's the great lie of the whatever you want to call it from the, as we move from the 50s and the, into the 60s and the great sexual revolution, right? Oh, we're free from the constraints of morality that this patriarchal institution has put upon us. Therefore, we can do what we want to do. And yet it has led to much heartache and rebellion. And all of it, the psalm writer tells us, is in vain. 
So how are we as the Christian to make our way through this rebellious world? How do we combat the powers that are trying to put their uh, control over us? And, And the reality is this, that as Paul tells us in Acts 4... Even the leaders of the day, what did they seek to do? What did the Jewish leaders of the day seek to do to Jesus? What did even the Roman leaders of the day seek to do to Jesus? Ah, crucify him. Crucify him. Their goal was to destroy Messiah. And yet, in all that they did, in all their plots, in all their schemes, what did they gain? They were only able to do that which God allowed them to do. It was in vain as Jesus then rose from the dead. Oh, the nations, they rage, they plot in vain. They attempt to to thwart the purposes of God and his people, but their best efforts only bring about his will. It only brings about what he already ordained would happen as he sent his son, didn't he? Why did Jesus send his son? That he may die, that he may be the the sacrifice for our sins. And so they plot and they scheme and they think, hey, we have Jesus right where we want him. He will no longer be able to take and steal the authority and power we have. But it was in vain. And it's not a new idea. The plotting and the scheming of the nations is not a new idea. It's an old idea, in fact. And we don't even just have to go forward. We can go back. We, we look, just look at the Exodus on, on Sunday mornings. In Egypt, they plotted in vain against God. We look at Babylon. We can go to Herod at Jesus' birth, who was plotting even then against Jesus. Hey, wise men, tell me where Jesus is that I might go worship him too. What was his goal all along? to kill the baby they plot but it's in vain there's a fundamental error that they make they believe the world believes that they have power to revoke and deny God I have the power to revoke and deny God they somehow have set themselves above him and believe that they have authority over him This is the fundamental error that even Satan himself made in the temptation of Jesus. Remember what the last temptation Jesus had was? As Satan, he takes him up to the, I think it was the top of a hill, and says, look, everything out there can be yours. What do you have to do? Worship me. Satan believed he could usurp the power of God. But it was vanity There's nothing that anyone can do to thwart the purposes of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we seeking to live in accordance with the sovereignty of God? Have we reconciled ourselves to his divine authority or are we living in vain? Are we trying to place ourselves above him? We must learn and know that God is in control. This brings us to our our second, the second stanza starting in verse 4. What is the response of God as he sees the nations plotting and raging against him? 
it's somewhat interesting. It's, it's kind of a characteristic that we may not often give to God. But it says this, he who sits in heaven laughs. He who sits in heaven laughs. Have you ever seen a, a, a really small dog try to enforce its will on a really big dog? You ever seen that? Yep, 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 yep. Big paw, boom. There's something funny about that, isn't there? Or, or how about, have you ever seen that, that kind of cartoonish character of the, the smaller person going up to the big person and he sticks his hand out on his head and what are the little person, what are his arms doing? Just flailing, right? Because he can't reach, right? And, and I think about, those are kind of funny images. And I think about that when you, when you talk about the God of the universe and the nations are raging against him and he sits in heaven and what does he do? What do you think you're going to do against me? He laughs at them. He holds them, it goes on to say, in derision. They should have responded by turning to the Lord and trusting in him. But they provoke him and he responds with laughter. He's mocking them. Some might look at God and say, why doesn't God immediately get involved in the world then? If, if God is looking on the nations and he's laughing at their ignorance, why doesn't he just come and get involved? And the answer to that is that we have a God who is long-suffering and patient with his people. It is God's patience that does not bring him. His delay is so that rebellious men might come to faith in, in, in him. He goes on and say, then what will happen is then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is a time coming, the psalmist says, when he is going to speak to the nations who rage and it will come in wrath and it will be terrifying to them. And he will say, I have set my king on Zion. I have set my Messiah, my Savior, my Son as the ruler and authority. And you have no power, you have no authority against him. And they will see this when he speaks. They will know this. All will acknowledge it. All will turn to him. It's something the world already acknowledges. They just don't know why. I remember the last big national tragedy, 9-11. I think a big, it was just really impacted everywhere. And what did people say again and again and again? Pray for America. Why? Why would you have newscasters who on any other given day would mock willingly Christianity? Why would they say things like, we need prayer right now? Why is it when your unbelieving friend gets sick with cancer, they come to you and say, hey, will you pray for me? What are they acknowledging? That there's someone to pray to. 
They know God's in control. They've just have suppressed it because they think they have broken free from his reins. Man's best efforts to take control from God is a thing to be laughed at. God's authority will be asserted. Any effort to take control from him is, is futile. Even though man may scheme and plan and work himself to the bones, God's mere words will bring it to an end. I remember growing up, my, and I've said this before about my father, but my father was the ender of all arguments. Because when dad got mad, it was done. No matter how much my sister and I would go back and forth, when dad said, that's enough, it's done. Mom could talk till she was blue in the face. She could scream till she was blue in the face. When dad talked, it was done. When God comes and talks, it is over. The debate is won. And again, it's only his patience that stays his tongues. His silence is not weakness. His silence is his grace and mercy. So that's our second stanza. Our third, third stanza starts in verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten to you. So then how does, how does the Messiah respond to rebellious men? For it says here, I will... Yahweh has said to me, and the question is, who is me here? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Immediately, it was David writing. I'm sure David, to a degree, thought it was he that was writing. Uh, Peter in Acts has showed us that the me here is actually Jesus. And, and to Jesus, Yahweh says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And this is not speaking of some time in the creation of the world that Jesus was a created being. No, Jesus was with God the Father throughout all eternity. This is not even speaking of his birth in Bethlehem. This is speaking towards something different. This is speaking to Jesus' new birth. And you might think, well, Jesus wasn't born again, was he? And you go, well, he's not born again like you think you're born again. But he was born again. Jesus, who was dead, did what? Came back alive. When we talk about today, you are, or he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. It is talking about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, has been made the ruler of who has been set in Zion. Jesus' his condition was transformed from one of humiliation to one of glory and one of power. We must see and remember the authority that was given to Jesus, that he does have the power and authority, that we benefit from this authority now. And so we see the, the authority, the power has been given to Jesus. And what comes with that authority and power? That's the second thing we see here. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. God says to Jesus, ask and it will be given to you. Ask of the nations and they will be yours. Jesus has the authority to, to but speak. And even the most hardened of, of sinners will come to faith. 
Nothing occurs apart from the will of God, from the will of Christ. God has appointed Christ to rule. Trust in him who is Savior, who will govern the nations, who has done it in the past, who will continue to do it. In the face of the rebellion of this world, in the face of the raging of the nations, we have Jesus, who has become the firstborn from the dead. He has, been a, he has become a model for all those who will be born again. He asserts his authority in his actions of the gospel. He has the power to save. So when he says in John, which interestingly, after we're done in Psalms, we're going to John. So when he talks about those I am statements in John, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, I am the good shepherd, all who come before me will have life. When he says all these things, when he says all that the Father have given me, this is what he's talking about. Jesus has the authority. When he but speaks, they are given. And he can save, but he also has the power to bring judgment. And in the face of this Messiah, in the face, as we see of verse 9, where it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. In the face of this sort of judgment, what is the response of the nations? This is our fourth and final stanza. There's a warning here. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The call here is submission. Time is running short and rulers must act wisely. The righteous anger of Jesus Christ burns against the unjust. Those who would abuse his faithful and loyal subjects. And so they must hear by faith the Son of God. Trust in him. Turn to him. Give to Jesus the recognition he deserves. Resist all rationalizations about doubting about who he is. Enjoy the blessing of the adopted son and daughter. The nations will submit. This is without question. They will submit. There is a time coming when Jesus comes again, when everyone will submit to him, whether they want to or they don't want to. Because when he comes, we will... It's an amazing thing when, when truth is shown to you in such a clear way that you cannot deny it. When Jesus comes again, truth will be made known to us in a way that we cannot deny it. It will be incontrovertible. It will not be denied no matter how much the world doesn't like it. When it's bedtime, it doesn't matter how much Joe throws himself on the ground and kicks and screams, he's going to bed. When Jesus comes, it doesn't matter how much we don't like it, it's going to happen. And yet the nations continue to kick against the goad. They continue to fight for their place at the table. They continue to amass for themselves power and position. But the end will ultimately be submitting to the justice of God. And so we see here a call to action. Be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. This is the call. Don't wait until he comes and it's too late. Turn to him now and serve him now. 
kiss the sun. What does that mean to kiss the sun? It's a, it's a submission, right? You see it today, I guess, in, in maybe you guess before you, I don't know how the, the, what the Queen of England, what her thing is, but you can see it often, certainly with popes and stuff like that. When they come in and they kneel and they kiss the ring or something like that, it, it's, a, it's a posture of submission, saying, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. It's saying, be, be submitted to the king who is in, set in Zion on the holy hill. Submit to him lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the son. Submit to him. Come before him in humility and trust in him. As it says at the very end, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We know that in him is the only source of refuge. Nothing in this world will be able to touch us. As son, he has all authority and all power. As we come into this season of Easter, as we begin to prepare even now, this is who Messiah is. When when we use the word Messiah, when we talk about the coming of Jesus and the incarnation, uh, Psalm 2 tells us about the nature of that. He is the son of God. He has been given authority. He is the one who but speaks and it will come to pee. And though we may kick and we may scream and we may not like it, that does not change the truth of it. The nations have plotted against him. They have done so. They will continue to do so. But that does not phase God. He is not worried that they will usurp his power. In fact, he laughs at their futile efforts. He is never in danger of not being in control. But he sent his own son. He gave, them, he gave him all authority. Therefore, we must now submit to him, knowing that the whole world will submit to him. And the question is this, where will you stand when the son comes? Where will you stand when the sun comes? Will you be those who reluctantly bow? Or will you be those who have already bent the knee, who share in his inheritance? Kiss the sun, know the Messiah, know what he has done. Come in humble reliance upon him and give him the praise that is his. That is what we're about to do, to come and partake in the thing that Jesus showed us that he was doing. It is through his shed blood and his broken body that his authority is established as he, uh, the perfect sacrifice, was made for the forgiveness of sins and then not only in his death but in his resurrection as he is uh, born again, made anew, given the power and authority, begotten as the Son of God, who is the king who is set on the hill of holy hill, Zion. Let us come this morning. Let us see the Messiah. Let us see Jesus. And let us turn humbly in faith and repentance to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for the psalm. We thank you for the way Jesus is all over it. Oh, Lord, would we not be like the nations who rage and kick and scream and fight against you, but would we 
submit to Jesus our Savior? Would we come in faithful and humble reliance and trust on him? Would you work this in us and would we rest and trust in you for it all? We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.